welcome to another episode of the Gaming Moguls Podcast. We're the take that of gaming podcasts. I'm your host this week, Mark Teske, <laughs> along with my co-host, Mr. Jacob Klopfenstein. Jake, how you doing today? Always wonderful. I feel like we should just be meaner to each other now to uh, really live up to our take that of uh, gaming podcasts. <laughs> well, and what I'm going to do is I'm just actually going to take away your speaking term and editing. Oh, that makes sense. So it'll just seem like you're shouting to the void like normal. Oh, I think this is one of the few times that we actually have no like intro news. We have nothing. No, I know. We can just talk about what we played this week. This is fun. I feel like we should. Oh, we do have one bit of news, Jake. Oh, we do? There's a big date coming up. Ooh, yes, we do. This is I lied. I lied to the listeners. I'm sorry. What is our big date, Mark? Last year, December 5th was an amazing watershed day for the gaming industry. Why is that, Jake? That was our first episode. We released episode zero with its copious amount of dying for breath, breath intakes. (laughs) I just actually tried re-listening to that recently. It was laughably cringy. Oh, it's so bad. I don't know. So for those who don't know, our first episode was episode zero, and Mark had a breath, deep breather plug-in, I think, and it pretty much level up. Well, no, I didn't. Or you didn't have one, and you had a a levelizing thing that made everything kind of the same noise, but it bumped up all the quiet things and lowered down all the loud things. So it sounds like we're just gasping for air. (laughs) Yeah, between every sentence, it's... (laughs) Yeah, ridiculous. So with that being said, we will... This will not be our anniversary episode, but the next one we'll do something special, not a year-end recap, because we hate those. Ah, for sure. So... Let's talk about what we played this week, Mark. You have three fun games that you played, and I have three fun games we played. Why don't we talk about them? Fantastic. One of the games I've played just a whole bunch recently, and actually, uh, you you can tell that this has sort of hit my favorite games pile because of the effort I put into deluxifying it. And that game would be Underwater Cities by Vladimir Sushi, published by Rio Grande Games. Underwater Cities is a action selection game where you're trying to build a ultimate underwater community where you're, you know, apparently the colonization of Mars. I guess that's a little take that at uh, at Stronghold Games. The colonization of Mars is taking a little too long. So therefore, we're turning to living under the oceans. And during your turn, you're putting out a little submarine on one of many actions to try to build domes underwater and start farms and desalinization plants so that over the course of several eras, you'll maximize your production and maximize your points. There's a super interesting mechanism in it where each turn you're trying to both lay your worker down and lay a matching card to the area that you're laying your working down. If you lay a matching card, you get to do not only the action on the card, but the action of that space. And the game is all about the efficiencies of getting to do the most things on each of those spaces in the limited turns you have available. Highest score at the end of three eras wins. Uh, This typically takes about two hours to play or so forth. Plays one to four. And this is a game that I've really fallen in love with over the past couple weeks. I know the first time we played it, Jake, was at Clopcon. What'd you think of this the first time you tried it? Man, I was a huge fan. This game is what it is. It's a tableau builder that feels similar to... Uh, terraforming Mars, which is, I think, why there's that little joke in the beginning of the rulebook. And it's it's wonderful. It, it asks a little bit more questions of you. I think it kind of spins up a little quicker and it just ends up kind of just feeling a little neater in total than what Terraforming Mars has to offer. I'm a big fan of Underwater Cities. I've been very jealous because you have played it a few times in the last couple of weeks and regrettably I've missed all of them. I think it's a great game. I am actually added to my trade list and took off Terraforming Mars from my trade list. 
So that has to at least say something about the merits of this game. That's a good call. I think the reason I personally prefer it to Terraforming Mars is the fact that in Terraforming Mars, the tableau-ness of it amplifies <laughs> in an exponential fashion so that by the end of the game, you've got so many actions that you're doing that each turn kind of drags into the sludge pretty badly. And in this game, you have a tableau, but that's not the major portion of what you're doing. You have a few additional things that you can do each round. It's not like this is the whole thing I'm going to do every round. It's really about smartly placing the actions and trying to match your hand cards to what actions you're doing. So I think the game paces a little better than Terraforming Mars, maybe. I would agree. And it's also kind of fun. The thing that's cool about Terraforming Mars is at the end, you've built Mars, right? And a lot of people prefer to build their own thing in games. So what you do in underwater cities is you're building your own little underwater city. That feels a little different than building the Mars. Yeah, this is definitely not as interactive as Terraforming Mars. And Terraforming Mars, not the most interactive game, but you're definitely all jointly building Mars. Whereas in this game, You're building your own underwater community, and the only touch points in this game is, well, there's blocking in the action selection spaces, and that is a real factor because there's not a ton of them, and everybody's putting out three. So by the end, almost certainly the one you really need isn't there, so you better make sure you take it up front. You're also racing to some jointly held goals, but aside from that, there is not a massive amount of interaction in this game. No, there's not. But I did find myself cursing other players more in other Wander Cities than I remember doing in Terraforming Mars. Maybe it's because when I play Terraforming Mars, it feels like I'm not going the big forced guy strategy. So maybe maybe that's my why I'm not as mad at people. But it was I was very mad with a lot of people's action selection choices in Underwater Cities the one time I played. Oh, yeah. The selection choices are tight. I mean, there are a bunch of spaces that are situationally useful, and then there's a bunch of spaces that are useful darn near every turn. And those darn near every turn useful spaces get ganged up on almost right off the top. The other kind of interesting twist is, so there's three colors of spaces that you can take. There's red, there's green, and there's orange, I think. And there's also red, green, and orange cards. And I talked about how you're trying to match the cards to the spaces to be able to take both actions. And there's an interesting thing that it does that like the orange board actions are really powerful, but the orange cards are kind of weak. The red board actions are kind of mid powered and the red cards are pretty mid powered and the green board spaces are really weak, but the green cards are really powerful. That definitely leads for some fighting over the orange spaces right up front because those are really powerful. And even if you don't have a matching card, you still get to do a really good thing. That's neat. I've only played it once, so I guess that that level of it escaped me. I was just still kind of focused on what everything was doing. But that's really neat that they made the design decision to kind of make certain choke points early, mid and late. And maybe you'll do it just because you have a card and all that stuff. My timing of becoming interesting in this game has actually been very fortuitous because there is an expansion that just got released to this game to give a, a larger set of cards and action things. If I had a complaint, it's that there could be a wider variety of cards to play. Like there actually is when you look at what they do, but they're all kind of named the same and have the same art. So it's like international agreement. And there's like four cards that all are called that. And they all do different things. But I I, afterwards, I sort of thought, boy, there could be a more thematic and wider variety of cards here. And I think the expansion's bringing that. So it's funny. I didn't even notice that a bunch of cards were used art until somebody pointed out to me. And I actually had in my tableau a whole bunch of cards with the exact same art on them. And I just didn't notice. Yeah, (laughs) it clearly shows how little I care about card art in games. I think actually the art on this game is beautiful. I really like how this game looks. It's just there's not enough of it. There's not enough of it. Right. I think they could lean into that more. And from what I've seen of the online images, I think the expansion is going to be a nice compliment to this game. 
So that was Underwater Cities by Vladimir Suchi and Rio Grande Games. What would you give it on the mogul scale, my friend? This is very clearly a 3C. The teach is pretty straightforward once you've played it a few times, and it's a standard worker placement midway Euro strategy. Awesome. Moving on, let's talk more about cities and transportation and all that stuff. Recently, there was a splatter game that was reprinted by Capstone Games, which from my understanding is the first time a splatter game has been released and published by somebody that is not splatter. And I ended up buying it, and this game was Bus. So it delivered about a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month, and I finally got to play it this past week, and I got to play it twice, which was wonderful. Bus was designed by Joris Rasinga and Joran Druman of the Splatter crew. So what you're doing in Bus is it's a little city, And there's a bunch of little passengers, and there's three different types of buildings. There's work, there's your house, and there's the bar, the three places a growing boy needs to go. And what you're doing is, depending on the time of day, which rotates each round, you're going to be bringing these little orange people from wherever they are to wherever they want to go, depending on the time. And every single spot at this node of cities, where it's a bunch of different nodes that are connected by little uh, roads has a certain number of building spots in each spot and every building can only hold one person that's functionally the description of it but what i love about this game is kind of what it asks of the players it's very tight and what you're doing is you're building this little bus line throughout the city to try to ferry people from these different nodes to other different nodes and it ends up being this very tight very not thematic, but very interactive, puzzly movement game that is just absolutely splendid. It asks questions of you that I think games that are way heavier than it sometimes struggle to ask, and the rules get out of the way faster than any other game I've ever seen played. It also has that thing in Dominant Species, I think is a great example of it, where it's a worker placement game, but when you place down your workers, that's not immediately when you get to take your action. You place down over the workers until everybody passes, and then you go through each action and resolve them in a certain specific order. And man, oh man, this game is fun. I won't dive too deep into it because I think you're going to play it soon, Mark, and I think you're going to really like it. But, oh, it was fun. Yeah, I definitely like a puzzly game. So, and I haven't played this. I've just observed it at the next table. One question I have of it is, I know that you said you really didn't like the uh, let's race to a spot aspect of a game like Blue Lagoon. Just from observing, it looks like it could suffer from that. Is that is that a thing or am I just really no. making so, judgments based on the look of the board? Yeah, I think it's so the, the most confusing part of the game is how you can actually extend your line, which has to be in a straight line. If it's your end of your line, you can pretty much go wherever you want as long as it's open or if it's occupied, if it's the end of their line as well, you can cut over people. So if you're both racing to a spot, you can cut around them or you can, if it's all occupied, you can come back to it. It ends up not being that cut offy compared to other games. What's worse about it is people can actually come and hijack your people. So functionally, you end up kind of creating this line of people on your thing where certain nodes are shared by multiple people. And so you don't want to deliver to them because if you deliver to those nodes with multiple people, they might move your people before you do. And so you end up kind of moving them to kind of protected spaces by yourself. But the bad thing is people can come and hijack those people. So, for example, I was something where I had two people at a bar and they wanted to go home the next time. And so somebody came in with their line and came and landed right on that node with the two different people on it. And then were able to steal those people from me. But man, this game is great. I don't want to talk about it too much because I think you're going to play it. And then we can actually talk about details a little bit more because, man, this this game is wonderful. 
it sounds a bit like actually the race for delivering cubes in Age of Steam. Is it anything like that? Oh, very much so. It's very much like that with a little bit tighter of a board placement and less fine. It's not financial at all, really. Um, and then it also has that really cool worker placement. Then they resolve in a certain order. And I haven't talked about it yet, but the power of how they get resolved depends on when you play it. But certain actions are reversed in order. So the more powerful ones will come later, but you have to place those first. So you can really block off people's um, choices and interact in a way that is is amazing. And on top of that, it's like a 45-minute game. I taught it to some new players on Sunday, and we played it in about an hour with Teach and Teardown and Setup. It was awesome. Does it actually still smell like the bar that you're delivering people no. home from? Regrettably, we had a spill on Wednesday. We don't. We played a bar, and we usually don't have a lot of game spills. Like I think the last one was a couple of years ago, and somebody spilled on a copy of uh, Love Letter. No big deal, right? It was already sleeved, anyways. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Regrettably, we had a fancy spill of a cider onto my fancy new copy of Bus, which is a bummer, but all is good. I flattened out all the components and has no marks or anything. It just smells a little bit like a bar. Nothing wrong with that. It's thematic now. I could plainly tell he felt pretty bad about that. Absolutely. And I don't fault him at all for it. Mistakes were made, but that is fine. I saw that from the next table and just cringed. I was like, oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, God, I know. Oh, well, at least Bus was such a cheap game, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those as, as all of the splatter spelling games tend to be. Oh, so affordable. So that was Bus by Splatter and Capstone Games, designed by Joris Wersinga and Joran Druman. I think I it's it's exactly a 2C on the mogul scale. Pretty light rules. You can figure out really quickly. It plays a little unlike other games, which might be the main kind of holdup for regular gamers. But man, oh man, there is some strategy there. I might even be convinced to move this up to a D strategy wise. I'll be interested to see what you say there, Teske. I tend to do better with games with a whole bunch of rules. I can keep track of them, but I'm finding more and more that that uh, that 2C bin has an awful lot of really great gameplay in it where the rules are a little bit light, but the strategy is punching above that. It's turning shaping up to be one of my favorite little sectors in the mogul scale grid. Well, and it works so wonderfully for our Wednesday group where there's kind of a random group of people and a random group of you're usually always teaching a game. It's rare if you're not. And bus, I think, will absolutely fit in there wonderfully. Well, and with that length, absolutely. Um, Also with a game about the same length and coincidentally, the exact same writing, a 2C. I'm glad you got to play one of my favorite new games here, too. Finally, a week or two ago. This is one of Reiner Kinesia's auction trilogies. This is Ra by Reiner Kinesia, published by Ravensburger Games. This is a game that's been out forever, I think. And so it's amazing that we've only just started playing this somewhat recently. Right. And your edition is actually by Uber Play, right? The small yellow box yes. version. Yep. 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 It's an older one. I, I randomly had somebody approach me on Board Game Geek recently and just said, hey, you want to trade the Adventurers Temple of Horus for a shrink wrapped copy of Ra? <gasps> OK, <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah, I'm in. So, yes, I played this for the first time with our friend Brent on Wednesday night about, oh, I don't know, a month or two ago. And all of us walked away from that saying, Man, that game's great, and Jake is going to absolutely love this game because I know you loves use some auction games. I very much do. So what's happening in Raw is it is a approximately you know forty five minutes or one hour game that is an auction game where it takes place over three eras again, and you're trying to do set collection in each one of those eras. Some of those sets persist throughout all three eras and are scored at the end. Others clear out at the end of that era. The auction mechanism is really interesting in this case. You don't just have a pile of money and you can bid whatever you want. You have 
certain tiles with variable numbers on them, and they're distributed evenly at the start of the game. So you might have a, a big, a uh, medium, and a small, and somebody else at the table might have kind of three sort of medium ones, so that ultimately they all have about the same total of numbers on them. And when you bid, what happens is you put the tile that you bid with into the center of the table and you take the tile that was in the center of the table to use in the next round. So not only are you bidding on what tiles are out there to try to complete your sets, you also at some level are bidding for your auction power in the next round because, hey, I've just, I have these tiles I have to get. I'm playing a 13 to get them, but I'm only getting a three in return. So whew, boy, next turn is going to be rough. I've never seen another game like that, and I think it's awesome. Right, and then coupled with this awesome auction mechanism is there's a bit of push your luck. The round ends if everybody has spent all of their auction token things, right? Correct. That's one of the ways it can end. Right. Or it can end by these, there's these raw tokens that kind of are in the bag and are drawn out at random times. And if you draw out a certain number of them, doesn't matter how many auction tokens you have, that round's over, and then you go to scoring. So if you're the last person left with that, like, measly little two that could be a really good two because you waited longest in the auction and maybe you can get like eight things for your one two token versus everyone else who got like three or four things for example but you never know if that's going to happen so it really makes this awesome valuation of both timing on when you're going to do an auction and how much you're actually going to spend on that auction with your token yeah, because you very clearly at one point tried to maximize that to hold out till the end and you had a token. I, and have, I flew far too close to the sun. <laughs> and I, you ended up with it nothing. It did not go well for me at all. <laughs> Man, this is a great game, and I'm really happy we've added this to our repertoire of really good shorter length auction games along with games like The Estates. Yeah, no, it's nice because it's a little more on rails than The Estates is. Yeah. What you do on your turn is you just draw something or call an auction, right? Correct. It, it's not that estates thing of, okay, here's this giant sandbox. Do whatever you want. What might happen in the situations and the positions that happen will be interesting through the gameplay in Raw, but you don't have to see this big open world and kind of just arbitrarily, I'm putting that in air quotes, because once you played the game, like uh, the estates or something, you know it's not arbitrary. But to a newer player, kind of can feel arbitrary what they're choosing to do that first couple of turns. Right. You know, the other side of it, too, is that along with the push your luck factor is that not all of those tiles are positive. There's a few things like like blights or I forget what they are, but droughts, yeah. droughts and floods and all that. No, floods are good. Yeah. So you droughts, you're waiting for this to come around to you and you have the high tile and it's all the stuff you need. Yet a tile comes out that eliminates a bunch of the stuff in your tableau. So now if you win that auction. You're stuck with that thing. And couple that the fact with that if you call an auction, you have a mandatory bid. You can't just call an auction and make somebody else take it. If you start with an auction, you have to bid on that. If it's a game mandated auction, you don't have to. You can just let it pass and keep growing. But if you call that auction, somebody's coming home with that. Yeah, that might be you. Yeah, it's 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 a wonderful game. I love what it has to ask of me. And I love games that have timing with something where you're like, okay, my two may win an early auction or it could be like this awesome late game auction or maybe this medium game auction where those things where Mark's not going to want to bid on this because it hurts the thing he's working towards, but it doesn't hurt the thing I'm working towards. So that's artificially lowered for me so I can win it with a two or something. Games that ask those questions of you are just awesome. And Raw asks that in abundance of the players. And the other weird thing you can do in this game is that sometimes what happens is an auction will come up by the game where somebody draws a raw tile and the only thing up there literally is a scoring chip. 
<laughs> there might be like a, you know, 14 scoring chips sitting out there and nothing else. And so you look at that and go, mm, I'm going to lose a turn here, essentially, by bidding for just an auction tile. But I'm really setting myself up for next time. Right. Where this becomes extra important is that there are bonus points at the end of the game for whoever holds the best set of auction tiles. So that's a pretty good move in the third era. What would you give it on the mogul scale there, Mark? 2C, like we let in with. I mean, it's a very quick teach. Like most auction games, it punches above its weight and there's lots of meaty decisions to make on do I push it? What do I bid? Do I stay in? What do I do? It's tough to decide. Absolutely. I'm a big fan. I'm going to have to try to get it on the trade list and maybe see if I can get an Uber Play edition because an auction game that's slightly on rails, that can really help with the, the frequency of getting to the table with newer players. Yeah. And then you can say, oh, if you like this, let's break out modern art or, oh, you like this, let's break, break out the estates. You know, it's a good thermometer for what people like. Yep. And a nice interactivity. I think this is one that could be a hit with a wide variety of people. And well, there's a reason it's such a classic. Agreed. Well, that was raw. My number two game I played this week is another kind of classic game that's been out for a while. And we spoke about it briefly in both of our top 20 lists. But since we've made those lists, both ranked them and actually uh, recorded, I have played this game a bunch. I'm speaking of Age of Steam, the most recent edition published by Eagle Griffin Games and designed by Martin Wallace and maybe John or we don't quite know how that whole thing works out. (laughs) But what you're doing in Age of Steam is you're laying down tracks in a different region to move cubes from different cities to other different cities, which increases your income and then makes you have the most victory points functionally. But this whole game is just incredibly tight and wonderful. But we've always thought of it that way until I've played some other maps. So this game is one of those games that has a million and a half maps in them. And we've talked about in the top 20s where there's like probably north of 100 maps. And every map has a small little rule change that helps make it slightly different. And all the maps are tailor-made for usually a certain player count and all those things. So we got to play Age of Steam at our friend John's house this past weekend. And uh, Mark was there, which was wonderful. But after we had played the five-player Rust Belt map, which was very tight, very brutal, we felt like we were going to be bankrupted and no one was making a lot of money. We ended up switching to play New England, which is a two-player only game, just John and I after everyone had left. And oh my God, Mark, it was like I was, um, what's the duck? Scrooge McDuck. (laughs) Where he jumps and leaps into the money. I think our income was at like 40 by round three. It was ridiculous because in that version, in in that specific map, you get to deliver three times instead of two. And man, oh man, it was amazing. (laughs) It was just such a different take, which really, I think, holds to the robustness of the system. If they can really just tweak a little things here and there, and it still is this an amazing gameplay, but feels completely different than the kind of base map of it, which was Rust Belt. I've only played the Rust Belt so far, which is a crying shame because I'm really interested in this game right now and would love to play many more maps. And I look at those, you know, 45, 50 income things, and I just go, ooh. (laughs) <laughs> who's ever going to hit those things? Well, actually, Nick can hit those things, but who? Yeah, Nick did. Which among who's us mortals? Yeah. Which, normally, who's ever going to hit those income variables? And apparently that's why they're there. Yeah. And it was amazing. I just really think with Age of Steam, it's such a mean game. It has provided me some of my best gaming experiences of a game. And it's also provided me some of my most lackluster plays just because it's it's a game where if you're behind the buck the entire game, you know you're behind the buck, you know there's nothing you can really do to catch up, and you're just suffering for the next hour and a half. Yeah. But 
when everybody's in it and it's tight and it's controlled and all your decisions really matter, it can be just such an amazing game. Yeah, and the game we played Saturday night was absolutely one of the more competitive games that we've ever played of this, where kind of all five of us were maybe not winning, but everybody felt like they had a puncher's chance in uh, coming in towards the end if somebody got choked out. And it was a very competitive game all the way up to the end. I mean, I I didn't win, but I was very happy with my play because the first for the first time I wasn't near bankrupt or behind the that poverty curve that chokes you out. And man, I had a lot of fun playing this one. I was trying something new this time. I was trying to see if I could win in a community friendly way. Like I was trying to see purposely if when I deliver goods rather than just saying, well, I'll take three, you know, I'll take two for myself purposely going out and saying, well, I'll take three and you get one, which still should be a differential of two. I don't know. It was an interesting take on it. Ultimately, I didn't win, so maybe it wasn't that great of a statement. And then one of the guys I helped out did win. So there you go. But right. it was the birthday boy. So happy birthday, John. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I think Age of Steam is wonderful. Um, I have so much good to say about it. The only thing I think that's bad about it is definitely read the rules and make sure that your entire group is interested in a very tight, very constrained, very mean interactive game because if they're not interested in that this is going to go over like a lead balloon to the group it is it will hurt going to work well and i've been in a couple of games where people got dragged into it not dragged but people were we were playing it and they got they got invited to play and maybe they weren't that interested in the game and it got to this point where it's like should we even continue playing you know and it's just it's such an amazing game if this is up your alley it is one of the best games of that Well, and I know there are maps out there that are a lot more forgiving that are like, I think the USA map is one where it's almost impossible to bankrupt and it's just money for everybody. It's the Oprah Winfrey of USA Age of Steam maps. So I I think that may be a a way to play with new players, too, is to get them in love with the system before you start cranking down the thumb screws. Right, right. It's 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 an amazing game, though. I'm so happy that we both have copies and that we have so many maps to it and i think i'm going to be bringing this to wednesdays for the foreseeable future because i just i like it so much yep now we just got to infect everybody else so this would that was age of steam by eagle griffin games and designed by martin wallace maybe john Bohr. i don't quite know how that whole divides down but it's a 3d on the mogul scale if there ever was a 3d would you agree with that there mark i would yeah it's funny for a game that that's straightforward as far as rules go that game that game scares me more than most just because of the uh the, the tension and the decisions there so that's plainly high on the mogul scale and i think i've got to figure it out a little bit more but oh there's lots more to explore wonderful why don't you talk about your last game that we played this week there mark speaking of painful games this game uh, was based on recommendation from some good friends of mine online thanks nick this game literally translates into the word prick in german which is a reference to the point on which you get stuck with something uncomfortable throughout the course of the game. I'm talking about a game called Stickeln. Stickeln? Germans, forgive me. I know I'm not pronouncing that correctly, but it's Stickeln by Klaus Pelsch and Amigo Games. This is a trick-taking game where everything is Trump except what is led. So that's crazy enough as is, so you have to be really careful to either win or not win a game because everything's Trump, and everybody has a pain suit that they don't want to win. If you win cards not in your pain suit, they're worth one point per card. If you win cards in your pain suit, it's worth the value of your card in negative. And this it's sort of this weird inverse trick-taking game where you, you, you have to win cards and actually in order to go positive, but so often you're trying not to win them because they have a few random cards in your pain suit. And boy, 
this is a real turn on its head as far as trick-taking games go, and I really enjoy this game. What'd you think, Jake? I liked it, and the thing that's amazing to this is you call it a trick-taking game, and it it is a trick-taking game, but you don't have to follow what's led. So no. it makes yeah. this really weird dynamic where I just, like, my brain was broken because I had to unlearn years and years and years of playing trick-taking games where follow what's led, follow what's led, follow what's led. But really, it's kind of hand management because let's say mark plays like a red four or something and i don't want that red four because it's my pain suit so i'm going to follow his red four but i have to stick under um or unless somebody breaks but i have to stick underneath mark's red four to make sure that i don't win it unless somebody wants to trump because then once somebody plays out of suit that's immediately trump and then you compare the numbers and whoever's the highest will win that but it just completely broke my game towards the end of it we had kind of figured out how that worked and had forgotten it forgotten enough about trick-taking games but it really can provide some amazing games um and what's also really cool is everybody you know what their pain suit is right right so you can dump cards on people of their pain suit if you know that they're gonna win so like for example if someone breaks suit and because they fought the first two cards that were played they really want and they broke suit with the big trump you can tuck a pretty high pain suit card for them underneath it so that they will take the entire trick and take your pain card with it one of the interesting decisions is i well you get to this point where you're kind of middle of the pack and you want to take the trick so you want to play a high card but you realize if you play a really high card somebody can just dump a pain suit card on you like i'm I'm gonna play a 13 and i'm gonna win these three cards and then somebody puts a 12 in in your pain suit right underneath it then you go negative right, by ruined, nine points. right so it ends up being this thing of like trying to win but not that hard so you're not going to win your pain suit that hard or maybe you just like throw a really low trump on or maybe you give it it's it's amazing the, the the game opens up opens a lot of opportunities like that and stuff and decisions that get really in your own head about which is amazing because it's just cards with numbers and five suits right yeah it depends on the number of players there's actually a six suit it plays up to I don't know, seven or something like that and you get a six suit gotcha. when you get more people in there which boy that gets even crazier and gotcha. Everybody has their pain suit in front of them, but you, whatever card you decide to reveal for your pain suit, you don't, that card goes into your pile of taken cards. So you lose whatever card it is that you reveal in points. So you automatically think, well, I'll put a low card in there, but that's a bad decision too, because you want to have a low card to be able to defend against taking a higher card. Sometimes you need to just play a low card in your pain suit to shed it off. And you get stuck with nothing but high cards in your pain suit. Well, guess what? You win a lot of cards in your pain suit. Well, then it goes to the point of if you don't have any cards of your pain suit, then maybe you're going to take all the tricks of the pain suit because you're always breaking suit. Yeah, you always you're always playing Trump. Right. So it asks some really amazing questions of you. And I'd like to play this one more. Oh, yeah. It's in my rapid rotation bag right now. So if there's ever a chance to just pull something out and play for the last 15, 20 minutes, this is going to be one of my go to's. Agreed. So that's Stitch Eln by Klosp. Stick Elm? Stick Elm? Stick Elm is how I've always heard it said. Let's do it. This game has actually been out for, I think it came out in 1995 or something. Like This game is really old. Yet for some reason, and I I guess it's very popular in Germany, it's kind of as well-known as Uno over there. But for whatever reason, it just never caught here in the U.S. And I was able to find it online reasonably easy. I think I paid $11 for my copy or something like that. So it's not hard to get. But you're probably not going to find it in your average game store. What would you give it on the mogul scale there? Uh, this is a 1B. Kind of feels funny because you're it's such a brain twister that it's hard to figure out how to actually rank it. But at the end of the day, you're just deciding what card to play. So we're going to call it a 1B. 
Right. I think we originally had put this higher because it broke our brain so much because it's it's a trick taking game. that's not a trick taking game because you don't have to follow suit and you can schluff whenever you want. So I think it broke us and we thought it was a little higher when we first yeah. start. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll do my last game of my section real quick here. I finally got to play the talk of the gaming community in 2019, Mark. I played it before, but we didn't actually cover it in the podcast. But I played Wingspan by Elizabeth Hargrave and Stonemeyer Games. Last year, or this year, this entire past year, there was a, everyone were gangbusters for this game. There's a whole bunch of dramatic posts about people not getting their copies of Wingspan. I think that the, the game made it to like New York Times because people were paying like 800 or 600 bucks on Amazon for the, or not on Amazon for on eBay for this thing. And it ended up being just this crazy hype around the game, whether how much of that is manufactured or real or just people being silly on the internet is yet to be seen, but I got to play the game that's behind all this hype. And I will say it is a totally adequate game. It was (laughs) fine. It was absolutely fine. It's it's fine. What you're doing in Wingspan is it's a tableau builder where you have four different action rows and you're adding these little cards, which are very well illustrated and very beautiful little things that are going to add actions to these specific rows. And so each one of these three rows that are habitats or the one where you're actually going to build your birds, the build your bird action, certain birds go in certain habitats. And then once you get that bird in the habitat, whenever you take that habitat's action, whether it be getting food, getting cards or getting eggs, you go from the very rightmost position all the way to the left, triggering all the birds that have actions on them. Other than that, it's fine. I mean, it's it's a good game. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's better than a lot of crap that's out there, but it's totally adequate. It was fine. You know, I, I think I've gotten a bunch of people who played it and have summarized it really well. Our, our good friend John originally said this. John, what'd you think of Wingspan? To which he replied, it was great. Really enjoyed it. Um, are you going to buy it? And then he said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not going to buy that game. <laughs> it's, a, it's a game that's good and fine and really fun to play, but not really championed by at least that many people in our gaming group. Yeah, this is one that we've uh, actually has been a little controversial under the hood for the gaming moguls, because this is a game we've both played a few times at this point. I think you maybe have played it a turn or two more than I have. I played it four or five times now, I think. And I think I've three. played it three. Right. Yeah, three times. And we sort of put this one on ice because my first play of this game was wildly negative and I absolutely hated it the first time we played and was just ready to unload on our first episode afterwards. And you kind of said, well, hold up. Why was it? It was such a negative. And really, the reason was it took a it it took a very, very, very long time the first time I played it and uh, just way, 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 way too long. And that was most of what I didn't care for it about it. Since then, I've played it again a couple of times and actually had much more fun playing than I did the first time. And I'm glad I gave it a better shake than I did the first time because I was done with it forever after that first play and decided to give it another whirl and so forth. And in your defense, I mean, it took two and a half hours to play a five player game, which is not the amount of decisions and amazingness that this game has to offer. You know, no. And this game really should be, you know, 75, 90 minutes, somewhere right in there. At max. Yeah. Yeah. With a five player game, you know. So there was a lot of sitting around waiting in that play of the game. And since then, I have kind of sort of normalized my opinion of the game to about what you said. It's a rather adequate game. It's fine. I will absolutely play it, but I definitely will not own it. I think so. Boy, segue time. I think what I really thought was missing with this game is it's it's a game where you're trying to see who can build the tallest sandcastle. Right. That's essentially it. And there's no tools in which you can impede the other players building their sandcastle in any meaningful fashion. 
you know, it's just, hey, I built the tallest one. Yay. Look, look at my, you know, look at me. It feels hollow. It's one of those things where everybody gets a trophy because at the end of the day, you built this beautiful little bird engine. Yay. You did it. You know, and it's tight with actions and it's tight with resources, but you're not playing the same game. You know, aside from taking a card that somebody may want, there's no real meaningful interaction at all in this game. Like, I think if you had the ability to make somebody build their sandcastle with one arm tied behind their back periodically, or if there was a little more direct interaction where you could affect the other players doing stuff with their birds, I think I'd probably like it more. I think it it needed a little more direct interaction. Right. But before we finish this transition, I'd give it a 2B on the mogul scale. Is that fair? And then we can continue our segue here that was so perfectly timed. It's almost like we prepare this. I would actually. So to me, this would actually be a 3C. This is actually, again, almost the definition of a midweight euro. All right, let's do it. I will. I will concede that it's a 3C if it's a light 3C. But I'll go. I agree with you. And I think that this game being uh, so non-interactive in any negative way is really kind of a hallmark for kind of what's going on in the industry now. It seems like so many games are these solitaire roll and write where you're not really interacting with each other in any meaningful way. You're kind of just sharing an experience together. You're seeing, you look down at the end of the table at at what you made and you're like, yay, look, I have my little, I have this little owl and he's kind of cool. And he's next to this other little owl and they did this together and that's cool. I didn't win, but I really enjoyed building my little thing. Yeah, exactly. And certainly no fault against anybody that likes that experience. I mean, look at the boom of interactive cooperative games recently where everybody gets to win together. And, you know, I'm thinking of games like Spirit Island, where they've even taken away the ability for somebody to quarterback and everybody's just like, hey, look at me. Yay. That's a very popular thing right now. And no strike against anybody that happens that happens to be their style of games. And that's what they like. And I want to build the biggest sandcastle. Great. That's awesome. I, you know, <laughs> that's, but that's not really our particular thing. I mean, I think we talked about interactivity a couple of episodes ago and make no bones about the fact that one of the things we really like in games is when there is some interactive. Now, there are lots of games we like that aren't as interactive or are maybe superficially interactive, but there needs to be some way to impact each other a, l- a little more directly. And sometimes that goes a little too far, doesn't it, Jake? It absolutely does. One interesting quote about this conversation on interaction and, 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 and moving forward to meanness. I finally got my Uncle Kirk to play a game of 18xx. We played 18 Chesapeake and it was a wonderful time. Laughs are had by all. But it was interesting. Towards the end, I kind of asked him what he thought about these games because he plays with us a lot and he knows what we like and all that stuff. And his takeaway from 18xx is, why does Mark like these games? Kirk knows Mark to not like games that have meanness in them. Like dudes on a map game are by your own volition, not something you really enjoy. Yep. But 18xx games are brutally mean. You can dump companies on people endlessly. You can hijack their line and token them out of existence and all this stuff just to make sure that they don't win and you can benefit yourself. So it was interesting to hear him say, why does Mark like these 18xx games? To which my response was, I have no idea, but I'm happy he does. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was an interesting question that you posed to me that I had to think about for a moment to really wrap my brain around why that is and why it is that there's other games that I don't like. It caused me to really think about this. And honestly, this conversation for the rest of this episode is around meanness and what's good mean and what's bad mean and why the meanness in 18xx is fun and the meanness in dudes on a map game, at least to me, are not. Ultimately, my answer for that was is that 18xx 
the meanness is mitigatable, and you have some player agency in controlling that mean. There's very few instances where just things are randomly dumped on you, like, oh, take that. You couldn't do anything about that. Ha ha. Or cases where just everybody gangs up on you just categorically and takes away your birthday and right. leaves you just sit in corner for the rest of the game. Right. Because no one can dump a company on you unless you buy two shares, which is right. the risk of buying two shares of a company. You know? Yeah, exactly. And yes, you can get uh, hate tracked into a corner, but that's probably also due to the fact that maybe you didn't plan well enough to have enough money to put a station there to protect that route. So there are always ways to protect against that if you just play better. And I've realized that the games were I, that are mean that I don't like are games that either, you know, are just some facet of the game that takes that away from you. And even then, I don't tend to mind that that much because that tends to be a shared mean experience. Like it's mean, but everybody's in the same mean pool together. And I'm OK with that because games like A World Without End are super mean, but everybody's in that same pile of mean. Right. Yeah, I think we should take a quick moment and define what we mean by mean. And what you just said is misery, because we like misery games. We like games where everybody's Absolutely. swearing around the table. A perfect example of this is Metro X. Metro X is one of the games that everybody's just, it's just a roll and write, right? It's a flip and write technically. But every single time you flip something, everyone's sad and mad and angry about what's going on with their little trains and their X's. And it just creates this amazing position of everyone just suffering. And we love that game for exactly that reason. We love to see everybody suffer around the table. That's a great gaming experience to me where everybody is sitting around just going, oh, oh, I don't know what to do. Oh, this hurts. So um, Hanamikoji is exactly that same way, too, where every decision is painful on which card to flip and put out there and which card, which cards to select and let other people choose. And that's what makes that game so delightful. Agreed. So what is the meanness that we like and what are some examples of meanness that we don't like yeah now that we've kind of defined about what games are miserable versus mean when we're talking about mean we're talking about the player interactivity version of mean where there is a decision made to do something it's not the rules of the game that have imposed misery on you or made it tight or made it difficult it's when an action of another player actually impedes your progress I have a question, though, before we get too much into that. What's the difference between that versus a term that you often hear in games is take that. So like sure. I've played Cutthroat Caverns, for example, and I've heard that lauded as like the most take that game ever. And I played it a long time ago, so don't take my speakings on this game to be gospel or anything. But pretty much everything we do is we just lay down cards and be like, Haha, you suck. And it just felt like we were all just stabbing each other and like showing off that we were all stabbing each other. How does that differ from the interactivity time of meanness that we're talking about? To me, the difference there is in player skill. Take that to me is something that's entirely random. The last in a take that game, Munchkin, for example, the last place player can just drop a card on the first place player and cause them to go to last place through no skill of their own. They just happen to have something that hoses everybody else up. And it's not because they played well that they have that. They just have something that can toast everybody else. And that feels really bad. It feels really empty. It feels like you had no agency or no control over that. Just, I was doing great, and now I'm not, because random. Right, because somebody had that card. And maybe, like, let's take a game that is really mean, too, like Age of Steam, for example. And we're going to talk about details a little bit more of mean games. But you can kind of foresee what people are going to do. It's not just all of a sudden, okay, it's their turn. 
wham, I stabbed you. Now you can't have this link or something. You probably saw them doing that with what their proximity to, with what cubes are on the board and what kind of they could see there. You know, you could have stopped it. I think that's a very important aspect of the meanness and whether it's good meanness or bad meanness, is there foresight? Can you plan for it? Can you mitigate it? Games where there is meanness and you can plan for it and mitigate it. Those are among my favorite games. Games where it's mean and you can try planning for it, but maybe everybody else can gang up on you or everybody else can just play a event card, which <laughs> undoes all your planning. That's not fun to me. I think what we should do is talk about some examples of overarching ways that there are certain aspects in games and meanness that we like. But before we talk about that, I think we need to do a quick couple of caveats. For one, we're like not talking about games that have direct like attacking on them. Like Root is clearly a little mean to each other, but you're like physically little woodland creatures in a war for different clerics. Like that's par for the course. It's just different when you sign up for a cute little game about something that you didn't think was mean, like Arboretum, and then it ends up being this just brutal 45-minute slugfest of meanness. I think we have to let that caveat be known. Yes, all your war games and dudes on a map games and stuff like that, yep, they're all mean. <laughs> we'll, we'll take that blanket statement because you can directly attack each other. And that that is not at all what we're talking about. We're talking about games that through the actions that you take, you're twisting the knife in not as obvious of ways. Right. Absolutely. Not like physically actually twisting the knife like you would be in Root, because that's what they're doing. So <laughs> what are what are some things in games that kind of provide you ways to be mean to other players? What are some of those ways, Mark? So one of the ways that it got exposed to me first up was that when I started introducing my son to games, William was great at games. He took to them. He got the rules really quickly. But I noticed that I really had to avoid games with one specific thing in there because he would absolutely come unhinged if this thing happened. And that thing was loss of turn. Right. Which and, and to confirm, William is great at games. <laughs> he is very competent. Oh, yeah. He's uh, for a 13 year old. He, he's a lot better at playing games than a lot of adults that I've been around. <laughs> but and he and, and honestly, he's gotten a lot better. He's he's come to realize that this is a part of some games and he's better with it. But yeah, it used to be that if, you know, oh, you get to skip your next turn or for whatever reason, you can't play anything this turn. He would just come unglued. He could not deal with that at all. Right, because it's a game where you really, in a lot of games, the most key resource you need to manage is turns, you know, because you only have a certain amount of them. And especially in those Euro games, if you just don't get one for whatever reason, that sucks. That can really hurt your game plan. Well, and he, he likes doing things, right? I'm, I'm here to play this game and now I'm not playing this game. Right. Absolutely. You know, a close cousin to that would be loss of options, right? Where you, for whatever reason, you now can't do these series of things because you lost all your funds and now you can't afford to do anything like uh, my stock value just tanked and now I can't sell my shares and now I can't, you know, I can't issue enough shares to be able to afford that next train in 18xx. Right. Or something along the lines of a worker placement game and some the person to your left is first player and then they took one action the person to their left took one action and the person third to you took first player action so you can't be first next round and you're already down two actions that you wanted to do or something along those lines you know it just really helps whittle down what your available options are which can really stymie your growth or stymie your, your production another way that people can really be mean to each other is through swings of scoring this is cases where not only am i preventing you from scoring but i'm getting scoring as part of that Agreed. And I think that kind of leads into 
people ganging up on the first leader. Like, for example, if I am off 50 points ahead of you guys in a game, maybe you're going to make sure and always pay attention to what I want to do. And that will definitely influence what you're going to do on your turn. Like, for example, take a spot or draft a card or whatever in the million ways that you can slightly interact with you, you might be able to gang up on the leader. Yeah, don't let Jake draft any red cards or right. something like I've, that. I've been at the table many, many times when uh, people have said that. And you know what? That's mean, but that interactivity is actually something we enjoy, even though it's it's mean. Right. <laughs> no two ways about it. And then lastly, probably the most direct way of doing this is people just plain hurting your thing that you've built. Right. This would be like a destroy somebody's base or cause them to discard four cards from their hand. Or there, There's a lot of ways that that manifests. Right. And I think this kind of boils down to a reason of why we like these games. And if you don't mind, if I go on a little rant here, Mark, to me, the difference between playing a Euro game where you're all just going to do something and see how the chips land at the end, a really non-interactive game like Wingspan. I'm sorry to uh, keep on kicking Wingspan here, but it kind of is a different kind of shared experience. It feels more competitive and it feels to me like the difference between all of us timing a run versus like playing basketball against each other. There were certain points where you are physically doing something to stop somebody from winning. And that is just as important as improving what you're doing to win. And I like that just as much. In a lot of games, it doesn't matter that your score was 95. It matters that your score was higher than somebody else's score. That's what really matters. If everybody scores 12 and you score 13, that's just as much of a win as if you scored 95 and everybody else scored 10. Yet they feel different, don't they? Right, they do. And it's 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 fun. I, I like games like that more where it's really about making sure that you're playing the table. You're not playing the game. You are not trying to optimize your play of a game. You are trying to optimize your play of the table using the game as the vehicle to do that. Geez, you almost sound like a sales guy talking like that. I know. You, you, you always wonder. I, I, I can verbalize things occasionally. I just use small words. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not that. It's just that you, you've set your life up to be a very highly interactive job. Right. And surprise, surprise, you like games where you actually are directly interacting with people to try to get the best deal. Right. Well, and it goes to that thing where... In a lot of Euro games, what's fun is exploring the system. And once you're done exploring the system, a lot of the game kind of melts away. So then it goes to this point of, well, I'm not really exploring the system. I've seen everything in this game. Is this game still fun to keep on figuring out this puzzle? Is it random enough or variable enough where it's always trying to kind of fun to wrestle with that? Or is it fun to actually play the other people and say, okay, well, I know Mark wants this. If I take this from him or I take this card, this will mean this for Mark or X, Y, Z and a million things. I think this conversation will be a little bit clarified when we stop speaking in platitudes and start speaking of like actually specific examples. But yeah, I agree. It's it's fun to kick people's stuff. Yeah. And there are definitely different tolerances in this one, too, because I think that just between the two of us, right? I mean, you definitely like a higher level of meanness in games than I do. And I like mean games. I like them sometimes. I also just sometimes need a break. And sometimes I just want to build a tall sandcastle. Right. And I don't think I'm overly competitive. You can confirm whether or not, but I usually am a pretty gracious loser and winner. But it's just, I'd like to know that the game we're playing for a reason. It's not just about exploring a game. I play a lot of games solo. I, I enjoy that aspect of the hobby, but it's not all that's there for me. I, I want to have a little bit of competition in there. Yeah. And I think also too, you're not mean for the sake of being mean. And I think that's a big distinction we probably need to make here too, that if somebody's mean and that's the best move for them above and beyond just being mean, then hey, game on, you know, that was a good move. 
Whereas just, uh, I'm going to be mean to you because I can. Right. And there's a lot of games that have that happen. And especially in a lot of party games like Cash and Guns. If you're the teacher and you're the one person that everybody knows there, I am dead in Cash and Guns after the second room. Because everyone's going to shoot me, right? Because <laughs> they need someone to be mean to. <laughs> and they're going to shoot me. And that's stupid because they wasted all their bullets on me. And I'm already dead. I'm out of the game. I wasn't going to win anyways. And now they have to deal with having. So yeah, I agree. Why don't we take some time and explain some of these games that we think are good examples of games that are mean and maybe wouldn't be perceived as mean and why we like them. Why don't you start with the first one there, Mark? Sounds great. So one game that gets talked about as being mean all the time is like, oh, it's such a mean game. Ooh, that's a mean game. That's a mean game. Uh, we're talking about a game called Agricola, also known as Misery Farm. By the way, that should be a clue to you. So is it mean, Jake? Is Agricola mean? I mean, kind of. Not really, though. <laughs> There's certainly games on this list that are much meaner, but it's very filled of misery. There are choke points in that game where people that are better at the game may race towards them and be able to value them. But I mean, those are just choke points. It's not like you're taking that and you're taking the pillage your neighbor's uh, farm action and you run through his uh, root veggie stores and kill his like family. You know, it's 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 not that mean. It's just everything is hard in that game. It has this big blanket of misery over the top of it. You are dealing with a hard game. This is going to be hard. You are a sustenance farmer. And I think that there are certainly places where you can be mean. I think there are spots where, especially at higher level play, where you really understand what cards are important and that if somebody gets that particular card, then that'll really light up their combo. And if they don't get that, you know, I can certainly use that. If they don't get that, that's going to really torpedo their whole strategy of making bread. And I think there's aspects of that. But really, I brought this example up because it often gets brought up as an example of a mean game. But it's a game that's kind of jointly mean to everybody. So we'd put this one in the misery category, more so than the mean category. Agreed. So moving on to some games that we actually believe are truly mean and make our evil, uh, evil smiles happen. The top one being 18xx. This game is so mean. I have actually been in games with you where you made me raise my right hand to not just be mean to you with my track lays. <laughs> That's sort of our starting ritual now. Whenever we kick off a new game, I'm like, Jake, raise your right hand. And you're like, God's sakes, not again. Not again. <laughs> like, Jake, raise your right hand. I'm not starting till you raise your hand. Which is funny because the one the, the one example that you thought I was being mean to you, I still don't really recall being mean to even like a decision in my track lay there. I have had that decision pop up all the time in other games, and I do aim to be mean to you, but that was not one of the cases. But in 18xx, you can come and cut into other people's networks. You can keep them out of certain value centers. You can buy trains. You can rust out their assets from underneath them. You can leave them with companies that are completely devoid of capital and forcing them to force buy a train. I did that to Eric recently, and it felt wonderful. And it's just, it ends up creating, I think, a better game space. But with each one of those things that I mentioned of being mean, you should be able to read the game state and know that that's coming to you. Obviously, if you're a new player and you have two shares of a company because it was making a whole bunch of money, you might not be as worried about having a company dumped on you. But if you own two shares of a company, there's usually always a risk of you having it dumped on you. That's just how the game works. There's no other way to word it. Same thing with your network. People can cut you off from the network, but you probably had an opportunity to lay a token there earlier if it already was your network. And because you either A, mismanaged your tokens, or B, don't have enough cash to play your tokens, that's just as well mismanagement. You know, you can't really control that. Every aspect of this game, you should be able to foresee what's happening to you and by your other players. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's an interactive game with a bunch of butterfly decisions, but the meanness is not out of the blue or random. 
Yeah. And uh, there's very few instances where people truly gang up on each other in this because it's rarely good for everybody to gang up because like take, for example, there's a leader and it's in everybody's interest to try to stop that leader. But there comes a certain point where somebody just goes, well, we've trashed his stock enough that that's actually a really good value and I'm going to buy up a bunch of them. Right. And it goes to the point where it's like, okay, well, if there's a five player game, four people could buy a share and sell a share if it's 1830 where you can buy before. And so you're not in risk of being dumped upon. Are people really going to do that? Just keep on passing two shares around all the way down? I've never seen it done. I'm not that good at 18xx, so maybe it's a thing that people do all the time, and oh, local metas will do it. Yeah. But I, yeah, you, you bring up the point where it's towards I've the end. It. <laughs> Person number three, that stock value is $40, and you could buy two stocks that are worth $40 that might run for a lot more than you thought they would be valued at $40, you know? I think that brings up a key point is that, yes, it's mean, and there's lots of opportunities to be mean. But almost all of it is directly related to the skill of your play, because if you're a skilled player, you can mitigate all of those things and never end up in those circumstances. And yeah, it can be awfully painful if you get caught behind one of those. I'm thinking of 18 Ireland, and this is probably why we don't like 18 Ireland as much, because it's it does feel a little take that. I don't know if you can say we anymore, man. It's well, yeah. I have played that game in person. It's one of those games that it really helps to have perception of everything. But we're getting lost in the weeds. I agree. Sure. We want to be perceiving what's happening with all the meanness. You want to know that that was an option. Yeah, it seemed like it was a little too easy to be accidentally mean to somebody else in that game. But to point, I actually do want to give that another whirl now that I'm more skilled and just see if I can't better mitigate that. Agreed. So moving forward with another example um, that I mentioned briefly before, Age of Steam can get pretty mean. Why don't you describe some ways it can be mean, Mark? (laughs) Yeah, Age of Steam. So if you can't actually deliver the cubes on the map, you're not going to do very good at that game. You're going to fall so far behind in income that you're going to constantly have to take loans and you're going to get in this spiral of poverty that's impossible to break out of. It's very easy to put tracks in places that make sure that people can never deliver their stuff, or it's very possible to deliver the goods they want to deliver out from underneath them, leaving some pretty lousy deliveries to make. The main reason for that is this game doesn't have like forked tracks in it like 18xx does. So you can just pop a curve in someplace and people just can't get through there anymore. Right. They may be able to track token out of it. But it goes to that point that we said earlier. Age of Steam has an auction to control turn order. If you wanted to go first, you should have gone first. You had to pay for it. That's part of the game is the auction, you know, like you have to be able to control that. And you can't be mad at somebody else for cutting you out from underneath you or cutting over and delivering all of your juicy red cubes before you did. You should have done better at the auction, you know, or you should have taken a certain other action. You had control to stop that and you let it happen to you. Yet that's one of the surest ways to lose the game too. right. Overpaying that initial auction and suddenly now you're in a death spiral of taking loans. Agreed. It's all balanced out. I've mentioned a few times that's one of the games that actually scares me and Still, like I said, I'm figuring it out and so forth, but there's enough mean little choke points in there that I'm wary going into that game every time to not put a foot out of place. Agreed. I would like to go real bankrupt in that game sometime. I got real close. I was at zero dollars and like turned four on a Rust Belt map. I had a couple of canned three deliveries coming up next, but it was scary for a while. You did not have your best game of Age of Steam ever when we played Saturday night. No, but I wasn't. I, I, I don't think I was last place. But I definitely was not the strongest I've ever been. You did beat a newbie. Barely. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Age of Steam. Definitely an example of mean. I'm going to throw out one we also talked about earlier, too, that is absolutely mean. In fact, this is so mean that the winner could be negative points. <laughs> and that's a perfectly normal play of this game. 
I'm talking about maybe the most interactive game we own. This is The Estates, also known as Neue Heimat. This game is something where literally the, every turn you're trying to hose somebody, either directly or indirectly. You laugh at the table about how badly you're hosing, and you're just trying to play the whole game to avoid being hosed. And Jake, how do you actually get hosed in this game? Which which way aren't you hosed in this game? So every single round, you can put something up to auction. People can do that and auction something that you may not be able to buy, but you really would like to. I mean, and then on top of that, there's placements. I love this game because every single aspect of it is interactive. I've been in auctions where the auctioneer thought they were being really smart and auctioned to something. And they're like, oh, Jake's going to pay a million and a half dollars for this. And I end up not bidding on it because whoever's going to win it is going to put it exactly where I was going to play it anyways. And so all you're doing is starving the auctioneer from money. And that feels mean as well. It's just every aspect of this game is brutal. That might have been somebody we know whose name rhymes with Tarkmeski. Tarkmeski. That's happened a million times, Mark. I, because, <laughs> I, I thought it was funny because you, you, you came out and you're like, oh, I'm going to auction this chick's going to pay a million dollars. And I was the rich guy at the table. I bid like $2 because the person after me was going to play it exactly where I was going to play it anyways. <laughs> I was like, what? God damn. Ah, and it's fun to be able to realize everyone's interest in this game and playing that and see how you can curtail their interest for your better interests or like how much people are going to pay for stuff. You know, I mean, there's so many different ways that you can be mean. And then on top of that, you can make people care about things. So if you win an auction on somebody else's piece and then all of a sudden put them in a position where they're scoring a whole bunch on your row, but less than you they're probably going to be incentivized to finish that row. Yeah. Well, and talking about finishing rows, remember that not every row scores positively. The rows that don't get completed score negative points. And at the end of the game, not all the rows are going to be finished. So somebody could have this great mega building that's going to score a gazillion points. And oops, sorry, I made your row longer. So you're not going to finish. Gotcha. Yeah, no, it's it's. It's amazing. I think that's a perfect example of the meanness that we like in games because you could have bought it. Yet, does that take that? No, it's not. Yeah, you could have. You, you could have. That's exactly the point. You could have bought that's it. That's part of the game. Managing your money and not overpaying for things is part of the game. If you wanted to make sure you could buy everything, you shouldn't have bought the thing that you just bought. You know, like, sorry, you know, it's part of the game. It's always about managing turn order, too. Another one that I think that we find brutally mean is Arboretum. Arboretum is, I think, one of what we say are most interactive games that we play because it's nearly perfect information. Besides what people have in their hands, you can really count cards and you can count runs saying, okay, well, I know where the one is, I know where the two is, I know where the three is, I know where the four is. So I have the six, so there's a five, seven, and eight that I don't know where it is. You can make sure that you feed people lower cards that they keep on playing into their path. You can just hold on to an eight and not feed them anything, but just keep that eight the entire game and know that no matter how much they build on that, they're not gonna be able to finish it. It's just, it's amazingly interactive with this game and puts people in positions where they can be really mean. Or you can dump a card that the person to your right wants so that the person to your left must pick up that card now unless they want the person to the right to have it. You know, it's amazing how many different ways you can interact with everybody in a somewhat negative way in this game whilst still only building up a little path. You look down and you can't really take any trees from anybody on their path. Your path is going to be your path, but you can really negatively interact. And you only score that thing if you have the highest total in your hand, right? Right, 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 right. So, so, if, trees, so right? if you have so, the eight and the seven and something, you keep on feeding people like twos. I don't know why you do that. You probably just try to score it. But if you keep on feeding people lower cards and they keep on playing them, and then at the end of the thing, you reveal that you had the eight and the one, and there's really not a good chance that they're going to be able to score it. That's pretty mean. You, know, you took away a bunch of their turns. <laughs> oh, the number of times I've seen somebody smugly sit there. Well, actually, where I keep getting hosed 
is, okay, I'll build this great little forest path that I'm scoring a bunch of points. I've got five cards in it and I've got the, you know, the double and, you know, I've got the eight and the one down or whatever. So I'm doubling the score and I'm holding a six and somebody plonks down a four and a three. Right. And it's like, uh, <laughs> that's not even the one I cared about. It's not even the big cards I was worried about. Oh, I know. Or, you know, you know, the garbage cards I didn't think I'd care about will total more than the one big card I was holding to score on that one. Oh, right. No, it's it's absolutely brutal. I also it's just Arboretum is so interactive and you interact in a way that's negative, but really you're still constructing something. All negative interaction does not mean coming over and kicking somebody's sandcastle. Yes, exactly. My example coming up is one where you absolutely go up and kick somebody's sandcastle <laughs> and in a very financial way. Chicago Express is my next choice for mean interactive games. Jake, uh, so Chicago Express is a cube rails game where, and it's a pretty short, pretty inexpensive game where it's easy to teach the rules. You're just building routes to Chicago and you're trying to maximize your routes and you're trying to have the most shares on that one. Yeah. Sounds pretty straightforward. Why is this one so mean? Well, there's a myriad of ways. For one, it has shared dilution versus 18xx where all the shares will always pay what they're going to pay. In uh, this game instead, functionally, all the shares pay divided by however many shares are out there. So if a company runs for 30 bucks and there's three shares, each share is getting 10 bucks. There's only one share and the company's running for 30. I agree, Chicago Express people, these payouts are way too high. But if they're running for 30 and only one person owns it, one person will get all $30. So what you can do on your turn is auction your opponent's shares so they're going to make less money next round. And whoever buys the share... That's just money that's no longer worth anything at the end of the game because they had to spend it to buy the share. And then also, maybe that person who bought the share doesn't care about making money for that company because the other player owns two shares of it and they only own one. So they'll just run it in the dumbest ways to not increase the value at all. It just can be so mean. Because you can only lay track on that if you own a share of that company, Correct. Right? But it, let's say you're in a scenario where you're the only person with eight bucks and you end up getting a share for eight bucks because like everybody else is really poor. That share might pay out two or three times and get you your eight bucks back. But what you can do is, you know, the person before you paid like 10 and $13 for the share, for example, you can ultimately track that thing and increase the value. Not at all. So that all of a sudden that company just doesn't make any money. Or what you can do is you can completely block people off through the through the mountain area and run all the way north. I saw a picture on BGG of some person's game where they went completely up through that mountain and forest area. So I think neither the green or blue, I can't remember which one's up top, company could run. Or even more fun, spend up all the company's resources just on plowing your way through the mountains just to leave the company broken, destitute. And yeah, you've got one share of that company, but... I didn't pay anything for it. And I'm hurting people more than I'm than I'm getting hurt. Right, so. I'm still going to get my money out of it, especially if it's one of the higher share companies. That's one of the ways that you just pick up a token share of a, one of the higher share companies and you're hurting somebody that bought three shares to defend it and then couldn't afford that fourth or fifth share. Right. And now suddenly you're absolutely taking away their birthday with the company that they've invested kind of all their eggs into. So in summary, I think it's plain to see that we like games, the negative interaction. And that's not saying we think these games are objectively better or anything than other people. Everyone has different tastes. If you're a Care Bear out there, power to you. I'm happy that there's a whole bunch of games for everybody out there. But when there's games where you feel like you can actually somewhat negatively influence somebody else, it's fun. It's it's nice to be able to play the table and not just always optimizing and optimizing, optimizing. Maybe I always don't want to play the best game that I ever could of this game, but 
if you still beat the other table, you still won. It's amazing giving people other opportunities to win. I think you actually summarized it well. It's not being mean per se. It's playing the table. And a lot of these games are zero sum. So that if I'm playing the table and I obviously want to do things that are best for me, that almost directly means that it's probably not best for somebody else. And, you know, me being good is being mean to somebody else. And that give and take and that level of interaction in a negative way often really makes for a great gaming experience because decisions matter. You know, you are in actual competition with somebody else rather than just who built the tallest sandcastle. Because at that point, I mean, there's a lot of these games that have solo modes. I like playing these solo modes for that way. But if I can just play my solo mode and post my score online, that just doesn't feel the same as when we were playing Age of Steam and John completely cuts off my route from Detroit South that I could have protected myself from. That felt a completely different gaming experience than me seeing how good I could get at Coffee Roaster. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I, I often think that I'm interested in solo modes. I'll look at that and really it's, hey, did you score 50 through 75? Then yay for you. Did you score 75 through 100? You're a master builder. Did you score 100 plus? One for the ages. Those leave me pretty empty. I don't know. I've never been that excited in that. Which is funny because I actually like those and you are more of a Euro gamer than I am, which and Euro games now, as we've discussed, are a little bit less interact and in a negative way than, than other things. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy there. You like them in group settings. I like them solo, but we both still like them. It's interesting. It's weird. Well, I think the differentiating factor there is, is the game designed to be that or not? Like if it's a single player game that's designed to do that, then that's great. That's fun. But if it's a game that I know is an interactive game and should be played with other people, then suddenly just going for points feels empty. Gotcha. 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 All right. Well, that's our discussion on negative interaction in games. What we've defined as mini games. Why don't you shoot us a note if you have any other insight, if we missed anything. And as always, this has been fun, Mark. Yeah, this has been fun. This has been a topic that's kind of been uh, front of mind after the couple of gaming sessions. I think we've played a bunch of meaner games and I wanted to deep dive a little bit into uh, some of our thoughts on that topic. So like Jake said, let us know if you've got some thoughts on the topic. And till then, hey, everybody, we're just one episode away from our big anniversary episode. Jake, do we know what we're going to do for our anniversary episode? We're going to breathe really, really, really deeply into the microphone over and over (laughs) again. Every year, the December 5th episode will just be just hacking for air. It will be as breathy as a Tori Amos album. I don't. Did you even get that reference, Jake? I absolutely no idea. And on that note, let's end the podcast of me not knowing old people music. (laughs) Oh, thank you for not saying okay, Boomer. (laughs) All right. Well, good night, folks. I'm Jake. Good night, everybody. I'm Mark. Bye-bye. This has been the Gaming Moguls Podcast, co-hosted by Mark Teske and Jake Klopfenstein. Please find us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Feel free to join our Board Game Geek Guild, guild number 3431. Find us on Instagram and Twitter, at GamingMoguls. Or reach us via email, jake at GamingMoguls.com or mark at GamingMoguls.com. If you like the Gaming Moguls podcast, please tell a friend. Thanks for listening.